Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Before I introduce the guest for today, just a reminder to go to patreon.com slash indoctrination, patreon.com slash indoctrination to help support the show, to help keep it going. Please, please, please. It would be wonderful. And if you are interested in the support group that I run for former cult members and for people also who are or who have left relationships with people who controlled them, then please contact me at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com or contact me privately at BernsteinLMFT at gmail.com. That's LMF as in Frank T at gmail.com. Also, there was some interest from people in the UK to start a group. Please let me know if you are interested and I will put that together for you and just find a time in my schedule on Pacific time that would work for you in your schedule in the UK. I want to do a special shout out to the people who have been supporters for such a long time, who at all different tiers of giving have really made a commitment to help sustain this show and have done it over the long term. That has been invaluable. That has really helped it grow. That's helped me be able to hire people to polish it and to make it sound like it sounds and to get the word out and to be able to help make it more available to the people who need it. So thank you so much to our newest patron, Otto, and to our longstanding patrons, Stephanie, Sheila, Holly, David, Donna, Michael, Zofia, Katerina, Peter and Cynthia, Camu, and Maureen. Thank you to you, and thank you to everyone who supports the show. And now, today, I am so happy to have Claire Headley back on the show. Claire was born and raised in Scientology and joined Scientology's C organization at 16. That included signing a billion-year contract in the C org, C organization. Claire was quickly promoted to Scientology's international headquarters in Hemet, California, where she worked for 14 years, including working as an executive in the Religious Technology Center under David Miscavige, Scientology's current leader. Claire escaped in 2005 at the age of 30. And since that time, Claire and her husband, Mark, who's the author of the book Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology, they've been speaking out against Scientology's abusive practices. Claire appeared in three seasons of Leah Remini's Scientology and the Aftermath and has contributed to many other documentaries and articles and radio shows educating the general public on this group. Claire also now serves on the board of the Aftermath Foundation, a nonprofit organization that assists people leaving Scientology to start new lives. She does this in a public way and also quietly from behind the scenes helps people in any way she can. She is a hero in many people's lives. And she shares more of her story and more of her wisdom with you today. Here's Claire. I am so happy to have Claire back with us so that we can continue our conversation. There is something so powerful about talking to someone who's had experiences from when you were a little girl and now through your life and into adulthood and seeing how your childhood experiences have impacted different parts of your life. But I know that we talked before and then there was more to talk about. There's always going to be more to talk about. Yes. (laughs) 
So there are a number of things that we could go back to, to kind of fill in the blanks. But when you were talking about walking around as an SP and being sure that everyone could see that, that you were this suppressive person and that it was this mark and it was obvious and that people were going to be then looking down on you and being critical of you. So that's one thing I would love to be able to come back to. And I think also addressing emotions and that anger and all of that is a bad thing, which is across the board, how it is in cultic groups, usually because the leader can't handle any negative emotion directed at them. So they make it a bad thing. And then the other part is this story of guardianship being given over to someone who neither you nor your mother knew, but suddenly this was someone who was in charge of you and just giving your child over to a person because there's a trust of the system that somehow you're going to be then in good hands, even though there's nothing in that situation that assures any kind of safety And that's not how it would be done in the world outside. So there are so many safeguards that are not put in place that should be put in place under this kind of idea that here, if it happens within Scientology, then it will all work out. So we can pick up any of those or, you know, have you talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. Awesome. Yes. Well, so touching on the first point you brought up, it is ironic to me in retrospect, obviously now it's. 16 years that I've been out of Scientology. But yes, when I left, I very strongly had this feeling. And I I honestly don't think it was my feeling. It was a programmed feeling that I had done this terrible thing by leaving. And I think that the actual emotions, my actual emotions associated with it that were driven by For example, I knew I would never likely talk to my mom ever again. My siblings wouldn't talk to me. You know, those things I think were actual valid emotions that kind of exacerbated the false sense that my life was over. (laughs) And, you know, and, and none of those were actual. Like, just to be clear, again, it's funny to me, like if you compare when in in life you make a decision there can be pros and cons for that decision. You might have some sadness and you might have some excitement and, you know, a mixed bag. But honestly, when I left, the initial emotions was just complete exhilaration that I had managed to break the cycle and get out. (laughs) Because really, having been born into Scientology, raised in it in my entire life, the odds were just not in my favor to succeed at leaving for many reasons, physically, you know, because of the property where I worked, the security, all the layers, but then also emotionally, I think you and I have talked before about the smoke and mirrors aspect and how a lot of the programming just drives you to stay there, setting aside the physical restrictions. Emotionally, you're doing a lot of the work to yourself because of the programming you've received from, in my case, from the age of four. (laughs) I didn't want to talk to anybody about it. In my mind, I remember thinking, I'm just going to close the door of this closet and I'm going to lock it and I'm going to throw away the key. (laughs) You know, I didn't want to talk to anybody about my experiences. I didn't want to, I just wanted to start over. And, and so there are some aspects of that, that were healthy. And there were some aspects that were unhealthy (laughs) in that now I've many experiences um, I've had since have just kind of opened my eyes to the importance of gaining my own perspective and sorting through the peeling away the layers of the onion, so to speak, as to what are my actual thoughts and my actual beliefs and, you know, so obviously, no, I, I don't think I now grant no you know importance to the labels they've placed on me. I'll choose my own labels, but it was hard and it was a big transition. There's no question about that. And at the end of the day, though, I knew I had to make choices that I could live with. And that's where Mark leaving ahead of me, Mark, my husband, was a huge part of that because I knew he was a good person, regardless of what anyone told me. And I knew that if I didn't escape, I'd never see him again, period. Just end of story. 
I mean, within two days of him making his escape, they were pressuring me to divorce him. So, you know, there was no, no room for processing there. There's, there's no, uh, there's no processing in Scientology. It's all black or white. He's here. You can be married to him. He's not here. No end of story. You know, things like that. There's no room in there for making your own choices, making your own decisions, doing what you know to be right, being loyal to those you love and being even a true friend. Yeah, it's very true. A lot of people feel really betrayed and abandoned when they leave groups like this. People don't reach out to them and they don't seem to care anymore. And that's also part of it that you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to continue having a relationship with them. How is it shared in the group? Like what will happen to you if you are in contact with someone who has left? What's the fear that's given to you? Going back to the part of the label of a suppressive person. So in Scientology, there's 12 antisocial characteristics that are deemed that a suppressive person has. And really, there's not a whole lot of logic tied into this. Because you'd think from an outside perspective, if somebody leaves a group that they've been in for 30 years, whether or not you agree with them or not, a normal group would be okay, we wish you the best, go on your merry way. You'd at least have some concern to make sure, hey, are you okay? Everything good? (laughs) Something, none of that. It's, you know, you leave, they slam the door, they lock it closed, cut off all your family immediately. Like for example, the next day, so I escaped the next day, all my family members were called into Scientology's headquarters in the blue buildings in Los Angeles and told, that I was a suppressive person and they could never talk to me again. That was a huge shock to them because (laughs) all they knew is that I had been working at the headquarters, had risen up the ranks to quote unquote number three in command. And again, not that that meant anything, but nonetheless, all of a sudden out of the blue, now they can never talk to me again. And it's just a done deal. And, you know, so they did because they believe that because now they're being told I'm a bad person. Therefore, that must mean I am a bad person. And therefore, if they were to violate what they've been told, they could also be labeled as suppressive people as well. And in their case, at the time, my siblings were, my one sister was in college, my other two, the two younger ones were teenagers, all their friends were Scientologists. My stepdad's work was at a mission bringing new people into Scientology. My mom, I think, worked with a Scientology company. So their entire network, their livelihood, their friends, everything was all intertwined very closely with Scientology. And so following that dictate, kind of important to them. I did have a few very short emails with my mother. And even in those, she just made vague reference to the fact that she had to be careful because she knew she was being watched. And, you know, it was just obvious that she knew there were going to be serious consequences. But, you know, she said she was just devastated and but she did it anyway, followed it anyway. And I've seen many, just many, many examples where it's just very clear to me now that them following those dictates is driven by fear, leverage, and control. And that's just the beginning and the end of it. You know, not that I agree with what they're doing, but I can't say I forgive them. You know, I mentioned before my mom and my stepdad and my brother have all done hate videos against my husband and I. So I don't agree with that. I will forgive them if they ever, you know, make the right decision. I'm certainly have that forgiveness in me, but Right now, I don't because they did those things, whether, I don't know, I just think at a certain point, you have to think, come on, really? (laughs) You really believe everything they're being, you're being told and we'll just be a puppet for them like that. It's, it's pretty sickening. It is sickening. And I guess when you're in it, you can see how much this is influential, how much this is going to keep people from ever wanting to leave too, because they know this is going to happen to them and their family is going to disconnect from them or their family is going to do hate videos. So sorry that that happened to you and that's happening to you at all. 
I think it's also people saying, I want to believe this. I need to believe this because if I don't believe this, then what else is not true? And I'm not ready for this house of cards to come falling down. So some of it, I think, is for self-preservation. Yes, I, I agree completely. In fact, I've often said to people, I think the longer someone is in Scientology and grooms their, their mind into that programming, the harder it is. And it's hard because they've made decisions that have hurt people or have impacted their lives. So the longer they're in, the harder it is for them to turn around and go, I'm out. It's not impossible. Many people have done it. It's not impossible. It takes a lot of courage and bravery, humility to admit you were wrong, (laughs) but you can do it. It takes so much strength. And I think it also takes support. I mean, I know that you had Mark. I want people to know too, that even if they feel that they're doing this on their own, they're not. There is a whole network of people who are out there where they can fall and people will catch them. Right. And you're, you're one of those people. You do a lot of catching. Yes. There are so many good people in this world. So many. I mean, that's, there's not a day that goes by. I'm not just blown away by, you know, the good of people in this world. Yes. Yes. There's lots of bad things too. There's lots of drama, but there are so many good people that just really want to help. And so for example, I was helping someone recently and I just said, you know, I posted in our local town saying, Hey, I'm helping someone and they're making a fresh start and, uh, winter's coming. So, and I got like, $5,000 worth of clothes for this person. (laughs) Just like, boom. Incredible. (laughs) It was, you know, and that's a small thing, but there are many other things like that where you just go, you know, there's hope, there's love, there's really good people. And that was one of the things that really sparked me to kind of start waking up. Cause like I said, when I first left, Yes, I knew I'd made the right decision, but still I was like in this shell of, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to look at anything. I just want to make the life I want because I've been told so many times that, oh, people that leave just become drug addicts or prostitutes or they're on the streets or flipping burgers for the rest of their life. Nothing wrong with that. I think I mentioned before, I'd gladly flip burgers (laughs) compared to what I was doing. But then you just start meeting amazing, wonderful, kind people. And you just go, Scientology's approach is their way or the highway. Well, that's not the case. There are just many, many good people of all faiths, of all religions, of all colors. There's just so much good in the world. And that really kind of opened my eyes to, I've just been living in a cave. Right. And a very conditional cave, because I think that's part of what people experience, that they can come out and the relationships are not nearly as conditional as they are within a cultic group, that you don't have to be a certain way. You don't have to believe a certain way. You don't have to speak a certain way. You don't have to not be in touch with this person and only talk to that person. You know, you, you can actually just be, and it's very freeing. And so I know there are a lot of people who listen to this, who are still involved in groups because they let me know they're still involved and they haven't yet taken the steps. They're worried about the next steps, but part of it is that they do believe this idea that the world outside is so much worse, even with what they're experiencing that is horrific or torturous to them. Still, the world outside is so much worse. And it's, I'd say a good 95% of the time, so much better. (laughs) And so I want people to really be relieved. I think going back also, when you're talking about leaving, and then you use the term escape today that you escaped. So I think for people to have a sense I mean, I know some of this is in, you know, blown for good and please everyone buy that book. So good. It's so detailed. It gives such a, such a flavor for the intensity of each day of each moment. And I think for, for people just to have a sense, I know it'll be a shortened version, but just what it meant for you to leave. And then we'll bring it back to now and what's happening now, because when people say, oh, I left a cult, it's not that they just walked out. I mean, that's, usually rarely the case. And it was usually a harrowing experience and a long time in coming too, with a lot of kind of physical and emotional preparation for that moment. So if you can give people a flavor of what it was like. 
Sure. And funnily enough, so when you're, when I was in Scientology, there were many times that people would, somebody might say, oh, I want to leave. And then of course the whole process would be initiated to shut them down on that desire to leave, which included interrogation, oftentimes manual labor, a lot of times security watches, uh, restrictions. Having grown up in Scientology, I was very clued into that aspect of it, for which reason I never once said, I want to leave. But of course, yes, as you said, many times I thought about how miserable I was and I wanted kids. I wanted a family. I, you know, I wanted just a normal life. And I had since I was a young child. But it's funny because the one thing that I couldn't ignore is I always used to have these dreams and nightmares about trying to escape. <laughs> and I never told anybody because I was like, oh, this is going to be construed as, oh, she wants to leave. But it was just funny that, at least in retrospect to me, that's how the thought was getting out from the locked door in my brain was saying, no, 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 you can't do this. You can't do this. But still, I would have these vivid nightmares, dreams, uh, you know, and I still have them to this day, though I gladly, I'm happy that they're starting to fade and become less. But ironically, anyone, anyone I've ever asked about this that's left or escaped or cut ties with Scientology has the same thing and just kind of goes to show you, to me anyway, the impact emotionally, kind of the scars, you know, the baggage and the everything that goes along with that from having lived for so many years in a high control group. But yes, yeah, so after Mark made his escape, so that day I had not gone home, had been up working around the clock for a week. And he had radioed me at probably four o'clock in the morning, asking me if I was coming home. And I said, I'm going to try, but I don't know. <laughs> and then I find out the next morning he's taken off. And or initially they were going to actually let me go out to him and talk to him. And so I was getting ready to go and like, oh my gosh, I got to fix this. Like bring him back. Because again, that was just my cult brain commanding action and then in, in the back room, like, wait a minute, he left without me? <laughs> anyway, somebody, you know, one of the higher ups caught wind that I was going to go out to bring him back. And they're like, no, 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 no. And the reason for that is because they've tried that before. And 90% of the time, the spouse ends up escaping as well. It's in the rule book. Don't let the spouse go and try and bring them back. And then I was told Mark had called the police, which was false. Now, as you mentioned in Mark's book, we have a copy of the police report, and it clearly says a random passerby saw the altercation and called 911. And thank goodness, because he wouldn't have successfully escaped had that person not called 911. So grateful our guardian angels were watching over us that day. <laughs> Yes. And the altercation was with people who were chasing after him, who were trying to get him to come back. Yes. It was the gold security staff who actually ran him off the road on his motorcycle. But yes, so it took very careful planning on my part to even leave the property, let alone get away. And I think I mentioned to you, then they followed me to Vegas. And, you know, it was literally in my case, an escape, including being pursued, pursued across state lines, which is a federal crime. But even I had managed to talk to Mark briefly, unbeknownst to anyone, of course, after he had escaped. And he asked me, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I'm absolutely sure. He said, but you're never going to see your family again. I said, I know I've I've given this very careful thought. And honestly, I had just come to terms with the fact that I had no relationship with my family anyway. They didn't even know physically where I was located. I saw them maybe a couple of hours a year here or there, rarely, if ever. I could never tell them anything about what I did, the conditions I was working in. I had broken my leg at one point when I was there on a motorcycle accident. I couldn't even tell them that. There was no open communication. And so it just became this false family that wasn't actually family. And it was entirely conditional love based on my involvement in Scientology. And I just really came to terms with the fact that I was not going to make it. I was going to die or 
you know, borderline suicidal. Honestly, there was just no reason. There was nothing good that was going to come of staying. So as hard as it was, and I, I did very quickly realize I would absolutely have to have Mark's help to be able to escape successfully. Right. And I think, you know, for you also to talk about the dreams that you were having, the dreams and the nightmares, it does often happen that people have dreams and they do last for quite some time because there's something so fundamental in terms of what we need as human beings to be able to be free and to be able to make choices in our lives about where we are and who we're with. And feeling trapped is a theme that is already woven into people's dreams and nightmares just in life in general. It's all the more so when you really are trapped. There are a lot of people I know who have been in relationships that they've been wanting to get out of for years and they have dreams about going to the door and then being pulled back in or waking up in bed with someone they don't even know. Not that anything happened, but it's just that they'd be happy with anybody else. <laughs> it could be whoever that that's their wish, that it's just another face that they wake up to in the morning. So the fact that you're still having those and I'm glad they're waning, it does stay with you, but it if people are in these situations now and they're having those dreams and they're having those nightmares, it's so important to try to take steps to make that a reality because it's like your, your psyche is screaming to you about what it needs. Yes, 100%. Probably for me, the biggest fear was the unknown, like what's going to happen, you know, and that's part of, I think, the false sense of comfort of remaining in a high control group is whether you agree with what the circumstances you're in or not, there's expectations and there's, you know, you just fall into a pattern as humans, we are best at procrastinating. So we may not be comfortable in the situation we're in, but Hey, you just go, Oh, another day. What, you know, and then the days turn into weeks and we, you know, the saying the days are long, the years are short comes to mind because yes, there's unknowns and yes, there's fear. And that's again, to me in retrospect, normal human nature of the uncertainty, but following your gut and following what you know to be right and having the bravery to just go, you know, I need to get on the right path is just so, so, so critical. Yes, it is so, so critical. And I think now moving as you became a parent and now, you know, having kids who are going out in the world, just making friends and being more independent and, you know, you want to let them do that. Still going back to this idea of uh, a guardian being given to you, who your mom didn't know, and you didn't know. There are so many decisions that I know that you must make now where not only do you get to make wise decisions based on fact, based on actual information, not just supposition that whoever, you know, whoever's hands you put your kids into that somehow they'll be fine. But I wonder also if you then think about how your family could have been so kind of lax in certain areas or so detached. It happens a lot when people who are raised in cults, it happens a lot you know, I know someone who was raised on a kibbutz, on a collective kind of community, socialist community model in Israel. And that used to be that there was a children's home where the kids were separate from the parents from the age of like six weeks. And it has created a lot of issues for those kids long term in terms of attachment and relationships and trust. And you wonder why those parents would have been OK with it. But there was this sense that that was the ideal that this is the best way. And so it's not to point a finger at your parents for purposely somehow trying to harm you, but what was the idea then? Why was it made okay that your mom would see you, what was it, at age four, one hour a day, and then that was even ended so that she rarely saw you at all. So what was the thinking behind that? So in Scientology, the belief is that children are not children. They're just adults in small bodies, which of course is ridiculous on many, many fronts. But the thought, you know, in Scientology, for example, they believe when you die, you, it's not reincarnation, but you, the Satan, they call it your spiritual being, your soul, whatever flavor of word you want to use. Theirs is Satan. The Satan drops their body 
dies and then the Thetan goes and picks up a new body and that this cycle repeats and has repeated for millions and millions of years. So where that becomes warped, I don't believe that, but that's the belief in Scientology. But where that becomes warped is then, so for example, my mother going, well, my child is an adult in a small body, so she would treat me as an adult. And therefore that kind of provides this feeling of justification for many of her actions. Like, well, she'll be okay. It's, you know, this is not something she hasn't experienced before many times and so on and so forth. It's this false sense of detachment. You know, many times I would hear comments like, oh, some physical bond is less meaningful because, for example, my mother has had thousands or hundreds of thousands of daughters on the whole track, the, you know, in the span of the millions and millions of years. So, okay, fine. In the here and now, the best thing to do is not talk to my daughter. And it just minimizes any sense of familial connection or bond and really makes Scientology senior to that. Right. And so how interesting, right? I didn't even think about just the, you know, the reincarnation piece of it, that she's been a parent many times over. And so being able to feel important then or relevant in the eyes of your loved ones seems like it's a challenge. Yes, absolutely. Especially because even the other aspects, like for example, if my mom voiced any questioning of Scientology, her husband would report her to the Scientology authorities, you know, any kind of sense of trust or real communication, like any of that is not allowed. And to me, that just becomes this handicap for actually being able to sort out what's right for you because you can't talk to anybody about it. And so it becomes very isolating to have this sense of, and this feeling that I need to leave this high control organization, but who can I talk to? For example, in my case, I would have these dreams or nightmares about trying to escape. I would never even tell Mark. Mark and I never once had a conversation about what if we were left and, you know, what about if we got out of here? We never had that conversation because we were both on high profile positions. So we both knew without saying that we could never have the forbidden conversation because if one of us then got in trouble and spilled beans, then there would be just outrageous ramifications. And the outrageous ramifications would be what? Just so people have a sense of what that means. Well, sure. So Mark and I were married there at that property for 13 years. And There were many periods of time, for example, where Mark would get restricted to the property. Uh, He wouldn't come home. I wouldn't even see him. A few times he was on heavy manual labor. A few times I was restricted to the property. If we had had a conversation saying, oh, we want to leave, they would immediately separate us. We would individually go on the program of daily sex checking, interrogation for what crimes we've committed that was causing us to want to leave and heavy manual labor and ethics conditions and on and on and on, probably under security watch. Most importantly, definitely not allowed to talk to each other until we both independently reneged on any supposed intent or desire to leave. And it wouldn't stop until that result was accomplished. I mean, I just keep going back to this is the church that has tax exempt status, and this is what it does to people. And this is unbelievable. It still blows my mind. It really blows my mind. And it answers the question that a lot of people are asked, which is, why didn't you leave? Once you were unhappy, why didn't you go? I mean, there's so many reasons. It's like asking someone who's, who's in a, an abusive relationship, why don't you just leave? There's so many reasons why. And so I think it's good for people actually to know not to even ask that question because it feels almost like a criticism. Somehow you should have been strong enough to do it, but you see what you're up against and no one wants to go through willingly, you know, what you went through and what you saw other people going through. And so you're going to avoid all of that. I think it's also a good thing for people to remember about communication, that if you're in a system that limits your communication, even with your loved ones, there's something really wrong, you know, that somehow you can't trust another person or that they might reveal the secret and then they'll get punished. You'll get punished. I mean, just having so much information that you're kept from having with people who 
you could be sharing things with. I mean, there's an obvious reason for it. Cause if you were to share with other people, I'm really miserable here. They could say, Oh, me too. And let's get, let's go, you know, and let's band together and let's use each other's strength and courage to go. And, you know, a cult leader doesn't want that to happen. I mean, then it's mutiny. Right. And so then communication is restricted. But the communication that's not restricted somehow is the communication you're supposed to feed to the leadership, that you're supposed to tell them everything and people are told on. So there's so much about how there's this uneven communication where it works for the group and against you. And they have access to everything, but you're limited. And so I just think now in terms of you being able to share just talking about what happened and helping other people who are coming out, helping your children learn how to communicate and to be open. I'm sure that's been a big theme in your life. Yes, absolutely. And I absolutely 100% agree. I think I've had many experiences over the last few years where it's become very apparent to me that a critical part of getting out of a high control group is unfiltered communication unfiltered and real communication can solve just so many things. You can't necessarily think through how your mind is stepping on minefields kind of thing, but talking to people that just don't have a vested interest and who just honestly care about you is incredibly powerful. It just really is. You know, I've experienced it personally, and I've also used that to break people out successfully just by removing those control mechanisms and enabling them to have actual real communication. It's incredibly powerful. Well, so you've actually been able to use that. That's, that's an incredible thing that you've gifted other people. And I'm sure you can initially see the resistance. So what helps them to get the courage just to say something out loud, even to you? I don't know exactly the answer to that. I think it has a lot to do with, are they ready? They have to be ready. They have to be open to an actual conversation. But many times they are, whether they are willing to admit it or not. So sometimes just kind of putting out the the line, like, you know, extending the olive branch, so to speak, of, hey, here's a means by which we could just have a, a real live conversation in person. It resolves so many things, you know, and sometimes it's not always easy. Sometimes you have to have very hard conversations and not everybody wants to do that. But when you do, it can be just so meaningful and so powerful in crumbling down the house of cards or the false beliefs that are holding barriers in place because that's what it is really. It's barriers and walls that the person's putting up. And if they're willing to just hear other views or consider other things. It can just be really powerful. I mean, in the way that you're saying that they need to be ready, I hear also some modesty because I'm sure it's the way you present yourself to people that helps them feel safe with you. So it's an important thing also to know how you're coming across to another person. Well, it's a very nice thing that you can help people feel rest assured that their information is going to be safe with you. You know, I've actually never asked someone this question. I'm really curious. It just popped into my head. There's so many people, like you're saying, you were miserable for a a long time. There are so many people I talk to who say that they were miserable in their group and people listening now who are miserable in their groups, in their relationships, but they might think that they're the only one or it's wrong of them to feel this way. And so I wonder now in retrospect, because a person in a group is never the only one who's miserable. In fact, very often they're having the exact same thoughts. They just don't know they're having the same thoughts. Right, because you can't share it. And you can't, I think you can't even look like you're miserable. You have to seem fine. Yes. So everyone's sort of faking it (laughs) out of necessity, out of survival. So thinking back where you were living in different places, what percentage roundabout, just a guess, of the people who you were around If given the chance, if the doors swung open, how many people would have left? How many people were miserable? 80%. And that's even statistical. So yes, so there were a thousand people at the, the headquarters when I got there. And now there's maybe 200. And so a huge number of those people have left. And 
you know, we've connected with them and talked to them, a lot of those people. And so that's, you know, even just numbers wise, there's that though, though I will say that also it's really struck me in retrospect, the number of people that I knew there that I just absolutely did not know. (laughs) You know, I knew nothing about them. I never had a personal conversation with many of those people that I have now talked to. And it's just a real, it's a slap in the face and also a wake up call to go, you know, I worked with these people for years and did not know one personal piece of information about them because of that high control environment. So in waking up, you go, what's important? The life that you have, regardless of what you believe, I don't know what comes next. But I know that what I do here and now, that's what's important. Live a meaningful life, create meaningful relationships, help people be the good you want to see in the world. That's what we do have control over. Honestly, anyone can agree with that. Whatever religious belief you have, you can agree that whatever comes next, what you do have complete control over is what you do. Make decisions you can live with. At the end of the day, when you lay your head down on your pillow, can you live with the decisions you've made and the actions you've taken? Simple. Yeah. Well, when you put it like that, right? It is. That's a really good way of uh, guiding you and guiding your your life. You want to be able to be proud of the decisions that you're making and also feel like you have the power to make them and the freedom to make them. And that's so important. So I want to thank you for talking with me again, for sharing more information and for all that you're doing out there in the community and how hard it is. And just to focus on people who have left something that they were in for so long while they're helping other people, they're still healing themselves. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes it's part of the healing, but still there are these kind of dual tracks. Yes. It can be triggering. It can be, but there's growth in that. Like you said, you know, just kind of embracing it and going, okay, I am, you know, because when you're helping people who have been in a similar situation, as painful as it might be, you can see the mechanics their minds sometimes go through and trying to extrapolate and sort it, sort it all out. And it, it is a process and that's okay. It's not an one and done. It's years of sorting it out and doing things that help other people in similar situations is incredibly therapeutic. Yeah. And it's very real. It's not like sort of the clearing the planet idea, right? That is this amorphous, intangible thing. And here you're actually, you can sense, you know what you're doing, you can see it. And that feels very good and very real. Yes. Okay. So thank you again for everything. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you for everything that you do as well. Really. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Claire, for coming back on the show. I hope to be able to talk to you soon again and often. I learned so much from you and I love how much you do for others and how much you've done for yourself and for your family to heal, to get past your experiences. And you bring up such important points. Towards the end, you talked about how many people are miserable within groups. I can attest to the veracity of that statement. So many people are miserable and they don't know that other people are miserable because people are kind of faking it till they make it. But feel rest assured, as I've said before on this show, That if you think you're the only one in the room who doesn't understand why you have to do the following things or doesn't understand some of the teachings or is actually feeling like you're missing out on life rather than this being the perfect life or that you feel guilty having had to write up a knowledge report or rat out your family members for the pleasure and for the control that that gives the leadership just because you were convinced that it was for the greater good. There are so many people who are miserable and you are not ever the only one. When I think, you know, we hear about people talking about no communication within cultic groups, it's a very powerful tool to make sure that 
people can't say me too. People really don't act on their own behalf as often if they think they're the only ones. Within a system like a cultic system, a controlled system, you will not be able to say to other people, I'm miserable or I miss my life outside or I'd like to experience life outside or maybe it's not as bad as they say or I've seen things happen here that are really wrong and I can't support it anymore. And my conscience is telling me one thing, and I feel like I need to leave, but I'm too scared. Those are things that would get you reported on. People would have to report that to the leadership. So people are not safe to communicate in these controlled environments. When a leader tells you that it really is for somebody's benefit, that you give them information, that you share private information, a private conversation that someone had with you where they tell you that they're unhappy. When a leader says, you know, come to me with that information and I'll be able to help them. Tell me who shared with you that they're not happy and we'll reach out to them and support them during this time. There's no intention to really support that person. There's no intention to reach out for help. There's no intention to allow that person to have the freedom to then make a decision based on how they're feeling, to stay or to go. It's a way for them to collect information and to find out who's not staying in line and who they need to work on harder and who they need to punish. And when people realize they're in a situation like that and they've done some things to get other people punished, in the moment they might feel like, Again, they've bought the party line that it's for someone's benefit, but afterwards it really wears on their conscience. There is this kind of code of silence within cultic systems, even within these awful teen treatment programs. Again, not all are awful, but some are tremendously awful. That's why an organization was started called Breaking Code Silence. Within teen treatment programs, very often you are not allowed at least the ones that are tremendously unhealthy and controlling and abusive, you're not allowed to talk to anyone else. You have to walk past each other in the hallway in silence. And the only time you're allowed to talk to each other is usually within a group setting where it's your job actually to berate each other and to be as cruel as possible. And that's something that the leadership has cultivated so that People there really kind of do his or her work for them, give each other a hard time, keep each other in line. And that also wears at your conscience after a while. If anyone is telling you you have to be cruel to somebody else and it's for their benefit, think twice because you're going to end up doing something that feels cruel to them and is cruel to them, but ultimately is also cruel to you because you will feel guilty once you realize with clarity, that it was never for their benefit. So it's most important to remember, I think, that you should always have a voice. And if you can't share your voice with people in the group, know that you can reach out to people outside. When a group has been in existence for a while, there are always going to be former members. The people who you're not allowed to talk to because they have information that the leadership doesn't want you to have access to about what's wrong with the group and why they left. But again, you will always have people you can reach out to. You just need to believe it. And you need to be able to believe that they're not evil people and they're not faulty people. And that's not why they left. They left probably for really good and honest and clear reasons. And I don't want you to be in a situation where you feel like you have been silenced for so long that you're not sure how to regain your voice, because it's hard, actually, to get the courage back to speak. And it would be wonderful, and part of the goal of this podcast is to help people be prevented and prevent themselves from getting into situations where they lose their voice. But always know that your voice is possible. 
there is something so integral about communication. That's why at the dawn of time, when human beings started being human beings, there was the invention of language, how we communicate. Even if it wasn't images and pictures before there were letters, still, people wanted to be able to say what was on their mind and notice things about the world and let people know what they've seen and express their thoughts and express their feelings and connect. Malala Yousafzai once said, we realize the importance of our voices only when we are silenced. It's so true. And I'm so glad she was able to find her voice and be the voice of so many others. Do what you can to help yourself and to help others never get to a place where you are silenced. But also know that if you are in that place right now, your voice is still there and it's powerful. You want to use it well and use it with the right people, not the people who are going to beat you down, not the people who are going to convince you you're wrong, not the people who have a vested interest in you remaining silent and docile and submissive. Reach out to those who have left, reach out to family and friends. Reach out to others who will be so happy to hear your voice. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.